0: Good to see you all today. Grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. We got a long passage of scripture today. Um, John chapter 7, verse 25 through 53 is what we'll work through. Um, just for the sake of time, we're only going to read a small portion of that. We're going to start in verse 25, go through verse 39, which is the meat of uh, of my, my te- uh, the text that I'll deal with today. All right, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, And him you do not know. I, I know him, for I come, after, come from him, my words, Lord help me, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying? You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be in your house, at your church, worshiping, glorifying, uh, praising you. God, as we uh, as we gather, I pray that you would give us eyes to see in this passage of scripture, uh, Jesus high and lifted up. I pray that uh, his words this morning would pierce our hearts, that they would... Undo our intellect and uh, God, that ultimately by your gospel you change us. God, would you open our ears that we might hear exactly what you have for us individually today, but also corporately as your church? We pray that your gospel would not only only be preached, but it would be received and heard and that it would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so if you're with us for the first time, uh, we have been in the gospel of John for a few months. We're working through the entire gospel, and we uh, we are today going to finish out chapter 7. And when we come to to John chapter 7, the focal point, as we read just now, is these words that Jesus says, promising us living waters. Jesus says that when we come to him, when we thirst for him, when we yearn for him, when we put our trust in him, we experience living water. And the language that we will... Unpack here is is such that the living water he he gives us he puts something deep inside us that's living water but it doesn't just stay there it actually comes out towards the world and upward to God that's what Jesus is talking about really here in this passage um, this is an important picture but it's it's a metaphor and so metaphorically it, think about just think about this what happens when you when you don't have water i mean any of y'all ever gone without water longer than you should probably not because you want it to but maybe circumstance a lot of y'all are military you you know what it is to, to be in desperate environments and may not have the resources that you need when you don't have water you get thirsty right i mean that's that's the the, the brink of it literally if we don't have water our bodies break down. And so what Jesus is ultimately saying here is, I'm not just coming to quench your thirst, I, I'm coming to be your everything. Apart from me, you in your, in your being will break down. Um, I like to think of it in this, in this way. Literally around the world, to include us in this room, there's billions of people who are thirsting for living water, both inside and outside of the church. The, the, the problem is, many of us don't even know it. Uh, the noted author and uh, theologian G.K. Chesterton uh, gives this very quoted quote. I mean, everybody said this at, at some point. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And those don't sound like like good words to say, uh, but there's, there's a significant meaning behind his words. What he's saying here is, is we're all looking for something to satisfy us. One man goes to a strip club. Somebody tosses back a bottle and does some alcohol or takes some drugs. A woman might uh, expose herself to a a series of romance novels. Perhaps many of us in here, uh, we're just trying to get our lives right, our money, our marriage, our parenting. We're all looking for something that will quench our, our various thirsts, and we turn to all these things in our lives to satisfy that. Add to that, we all have desires for more, for more of stuff, for more beauty, for more meaning for more significance for all those things that makes life right in the way that we think life is supposed to be right. In essence, we're all looking for something that only as as Chesterton would put it, God can give us. We're thirsting for something that we keep grabbing for stuff and I mean in all of our grabbing, it never it never gives us exactly what we need. And so Chesterton is saying in this quote, outside of satisfaction in Jesus we will never find the, the things that we thirst for, and so in this text, Jesus is offering us living water, water, living water that halts all of our searching. He offers us supernatural life and a life that 's only possible when you come and in, come into that life through the very presence of of Jesus. Um, in a sense, all of John chapter seven is a precursor to 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 Jesus offering us that water, and uh, as Peter did so well last week, we have to understand the setting. And the setting really is, is at the very beginning of the book. It's the Feast of Booths. Uh, verse two says this: John chapter seven, verse two. Now the Jew uh, Jews Feast of Booths was at hand. There's only a few words there, but there's a lot in, in that. Okay, and of course you have to know a little bit of Old Testament history. What was the Old Testament Feast of Booths? Um, anybody ever been to Mardi Gras? All right, I've never been, but I've seen pictures. I've read articles. I mean, it, it's, I love how God has put it in us to, to sing and dance and, and laugh and party. I mean, it's OK for us to be partying people. And so the Feast of booze, at, at least like I like to think of it, it's like a sanctified Mardi Gras. It's, it's like a God ordained reason to party. That's really what it was. The Feast of Booze was one of three celebrations that every man and his family uh, within 20 miles of Jerusalem had to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe the, uh, the actual feast. And so like the Mardi Gras, uh, Jerusalem would have been packed. I mean there would have been people coming from all over the place. There would have been a festive atmosphere and the Jews would have, they would have done just that. They would have been dancing and laughing and eating and of course they would have been undertaking some specific ritual that God had commanded them to do uh, to observe what he had done in their lives in their history. This particular feast was to remind Israel that they had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt And while they were wandering in the desert, they had nowhere to live. I mean, they were nomads. And so what did they do? They lived in tents, tabernacles. They lived in booths. And so those that came to those that lived in Jerusalem would come outside of their house. It's like you like setting up a tent in your backyard and they would have a tent or makeshift kind of a booth building. And they would live in that. And during this this eight day long celebration, they would remember God's. Redemption and all that He had done for him, him, Him keeping them by His grace in the wilderness, by by you know hanging out in a booth with them and their family. And if you came from outside of Jerusalem, you'd set your booth up, your tabernacle tent kind of thing, right there in the midst of the street. And again, it was to to remind themselves of all that God had done for them and the way that He had kept them. This is how Deuteronomy says. This is what Deuteronomy says in regards to to God keeping Israel in the wilderness. They were, of, of course, they were traveling around, wandering about in the wilderness for uh, 40 years, and their shoes never gave out. Wouldn't you love that if you're a parent with a teenager that, that like, some of my kids, I mean, I was, we were at, down Alexandria last night, and uh, right on the metro, I looked down, and one of my kids, I'm not going to say his name, Jonathan, um, <laughs> I looked at his left foot, and John, Jonathan can go through some shoes like this. I was like, what are you doing to your shoe, Dude. And it was like mangle ate up. It's like you probably shouldn't even be wearing that out in public. But kids can go through some shoes. Israel, they're they're, A parent wouldn't have to worry about it. The shoes, their shoes and their clothes never wore out. That's how God kept them. And that's not even the the, the end of it. He gave them manna and he caused rock to come from a water to come from a rock. God, by his grace, Kept them, and so this is what would happen during this 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 feast. The the heart of it was a celebration, a daily rite, and the people would converge on the temple. They have a priest leading them, and they would have a citrus fruit in their left hand. They would have a bunch of branches in their right hand. The priest is leading them. He has this golden pitcher in his hand. They 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 go through the temple to a place called uh, the 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 sea of uh, the, the pool of Siloam. They get there, they're singing songs, and when they got there, they would recite the verses of Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The priest would blow a trumpet, he'd dip some water, and then, I mean, they'd go back to partying. They hit repeat, and they would do all this celebration eating, sleeping, um, partying, dancing, celebrating um, for eight full days. And they repeat it the next day. And so, that's the backdrop to John chapter seven. And, and that really is, that gets us through the drama that happens with Jesus and this crowd at, at Jerusalem. Um, now, when we enter John chapter seven, Jesus is in Galilee. OK, and he's, he's got this interaction with his brothers. Peter talked about this last week. And um, these are these are Jesus real brothers, obviously half brothers, uh, same mother, different father. And they're saying to Jesus, ah, you know, if you want to be great, you should go to Jerusalem so that you can get the kingdom that you think you deserve. Um, now, his brothers, they don't believe in him. They don't believe in him as anything else than my big brother, Jesus. They don't see anything special in him. Yeah, they know about some miracles that he's done. But interestingly, he's just an, another man to them. And so when they tell him to go to Jerusalem, they're basically saying hey, if you want to have a secular kingdom, you got to go and and make it public and and do all the things that you do so everybody can see you. And Jesus has only these few words for for them. My time has not yet come. All right, I'm going to hold on to that phrase. I'm going to come back to it in a couple minutes. Halfway through uh, the feast, we see this in in John chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus decides to go. Now, that, that sounds kind of strange. He just told his brothers, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. But then he, he goes. Well, what's happening here is Jesus isn't going to go on their term. Of course, they don't believe he's the Messiah. He's going to go on his own terms. He comes in stealth. He pops up. And then obviously he starts teaching a lot of drama here in John chapter seven. But this is where the conversation is getting to it, the, the whole conversation of John chapter seven, as much as the, really the whole theme of John the Gospel of John itself is this, this thing of, is Jesus the Christ? That, that's the conversation going on in John chapter 7. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the expected Messiah that we should worship and praise that's going to lead us to God? And that's where we enter our text, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know him, where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so the crowds are aware of a plot to to kill Jesus. It's it's not a secret. And so the question that they ask is, if this is the God the religious leaders um, are trying to kill, why don't they just silence him? I mean, why don't they just like go arrest him? close his mouth, get him out of the public scene. They didn't understand that. Now, this crowd assumed that Jesus remained free because the the religious authorities had not fully uh, discerned if he was legit or not. And so that's why they let him do whatever he wanted to do. But, of course, the true reason that that the text tells us is that Jesus' time had not yet come. Again, that, that phrase, Jesus' time had not yet come, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so Jesus is teaching and all the while there's this conversation in the crowd in regards to, I mean, this him, right? well why don't they why don't they secure him and and do something to him and and basically, with the murmur in the background, Jesus says, "Cuts to the chase and i I think you know this it doesn't say this in the text I think perhaps this is this gives us a little uh inclination about about how Jesus is affected by Uh, the rejection of the people. I mean, there's this whole crowd that he's been doing miracles around and and that he's showing portions of his glory. And for all that he's done, they still don't believe that he is who he has said and has demonstrated that he is. And so basically Jesus says this, "You you know, guys, you know me. At least you'd think you know me. But if you really knew me, you'd know God. He says, yeah, you know me. You know where I'm from. I'm from Galilee. But if you really knew me, you would know that I am who I say I am. And I think that really is the bottom line. I mean, if you unpeel that, this, this thing that Jesus is telling them, if you really knew me, then you would know that I am, I am divine. I am God. I am the Messiah that you seek. I'm the one that's come to satisfy your every need. And really, that is, that's the bottom line for us here today. If you're here and, and you think that you know God, but you don't know God through, through Jesus, you don't really know God. Jesus says, to, to know me is to know God. To know God is to know me. But to, to reject Jesus is to reject God. That's what Jesus is saying. And so th- this crowd's problem really is the same problem that we, that we have today. Jesus didn't fit into their idea of who the Messiah was. And, and we go back to this this G.K. Chesterton idea of we're all searching for something to satisfy us. And so our Messiah really is that thing or that person or that place or even that idea that will make that will put me in my happy spot. My, my, I'm, 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 I'm most satisfied when when this is right in, in my life. And so these crowds were saying, I mean, how can this be the Christ? We know this is Jesus from Galilee. He's got a mom and a dad. His dad's a carpenter. He's got brothers. We we all know them. There's this, this false tradition that the Messiah was was lying in stealth amongst the Jews, and that all of a sudden he was going to pop up. He was going to start his ministry. He was going to deliver them from from Roman oppression, and then he was going to resurrect the the greatness and the grandeur of the the Israelite nation. And then they were going to live happily ever after. And when this wasn't happening with this supposed Jesus, then they they all questioned him. It's like, well, he he kind of sort of seems like he might fit the the the, the role but he's not doing the things that we want him to do. He's not the Messiah that we want. And so Jesus remarked in in verse 28 and 29, really are a rebuke. Again, he's like, you know, you know me, but you don't really know me, because if you knew me, you'd know that I'm from God. And so in verse 28, he asserts, he who sent me is true. Which is to say, you know, we have to get our notion of who Jesus is From God's Word and not tradition. I was having a, um, I meet with five guys amongst our church that are working their way to leadership and eldership in our church. And this week our discussion was angels, demons, and Satan. How about that? And so I, I started off the conversation by, isn't it crazy how uh, most of us in the world get our idea of what an angel is, what a demon is, and who Satan is. We get it from like our imagination or movies and and stuff like that. Uh, instead of uh, believing what the Bible says, even even Christians. I mean, I I haven't seen The Walking Dead, but I, I suppose that half of y'all think that like the angels and demons and stuff is like whatever is happening in in like movies like Dracula and Walking Dead and stuff like that. And uh, you know, I, I guess. There's partial truth in all that stuff. But really, scripture, the word of God, the God, the, the the revelation of who he is and the revelation of his world should come from, we should be informed by the uh the words of scripture, not necessarily our imagination or the things that some I'm gonna say crazy, I shouldn't say that, that, that people come up with from their imagination. If these people had simply read the read the scriptures, if they had informed themselves by God's word from the prophets, they would have found ample evidence that Jesus was their promised Savior, and that same truth is available to us as well. We can find out who Jesus is simply by opening our Bibles and and reading it. So, so why couldn't they silence Jesus? I mean, why couldn't they? Why couldn't they just arrest him? The Scripture says in verse thirty, because his hour had not yet come. What, what's Jesus' hour? This is, this is an important phrase, and we've seen we see it through. Through, at least a couple times throughout all, all the Gospels. We have seen it at least three times already in John, and we'll see it again in John chapter 8. Jesus in uh, John chapter 2, verse 4, he's at Cana. There's a wedding with some of his close friends, and he turns the water into wine. His mama, his, his mama Mary, is like, Jesus, they don't have any more wine. You need to do something. And he looks at her and says, woman, I mean, why are you bringing me into this? My time is not yet called. It's not my time. Of course, he says it again um, in, uh, two times here in verse, verse, uh, chapter 7. This phrase speaks to his death. Jesus is saying, um, God is going to glorify me, and that glorification is going to come when I'm, I'm pinned to a cross and my blood flows for the forgiveness of, of your sins and the sins of all those in the world. And so this speaks to the fact that God had a planned day and a purpose for Jesus to die. What was that day? It was the day he died on on the cross on Golgotha. What was the purpose? That he would be uh, my savior and yours for the he would die for the forgiveness of our sins, for those who trust in him. And God intended that so that everything that's written in the in the Old Testament in terms of types and prophecies would be fulfilled in this man, Jesus. And those are encouraging words for us because uh, we're united with Jesus in his death, but also in his life. So what's true for Jesus because of your union with him is true for us. What does that mean? It means your, your life, the psalmist says, your life is in his hands. And so, you know, a lot of us, a lot of times we, I mean, we just fret about life, what's going to happen with us. And I would tell you um, there, was, there was destiny in Jesus' life. And because you're in him, there's destiny in your life. And God is, or, I mean, he's ordained every, every day that you'll live. And he's ordained just like, like he ordains your beginning. He's ordained your end. And there's no one that can thwart that for you, not even yourself. Verse 31. Yet many of, us, uh, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? This man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, hey, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that will not find him? Does he intend to go uh, to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks what does he mean by saying, you'll seek me and you'll not find me and where I am, you cannot come. And so what's happening here? I mean, it seems like there's there's this uh, uh, kind of an easy dialogue between Jesus and some of the people and, and the religious leaders. But what really is going on here is uh, a fierce confrontation. Uh, Jesus doesn't fit the, uh, the, the religious leaders idea of a messiah And they keep coming back saying, I mean, he's not the one. And the crowd is like, well, he's doing all these special signs and stuff. Uh, Well, if if he's not the one, why aren't you arresting him? And of course, his time had not yet come. Nor does Jesus fit the expectation of what he would come to do. All the while, Jesus knows uh, what they're planning to do. And would that bother you? I mean, if you were Jesus, think about this. You know that these people are murmuring about you. And they're planning to arrest you and eventually kill you. And he knows all this is going on. And at the same time, he's trying to give them an opportunity to, to, to know who he is and, 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 and actually save them. And so Jesus' responses here serves the humble purpose of an opportunity, a last opportunity for many of these people to simply believe him. Look at verse 33. He says, I'll be with you a little longer. But here is the, the Jews' problem. They expected their Messiah to come. He's going to come in on a horse. He was going to be their warrior, their conqueror. He's going to be their hero. He was going to release them from oppression, and he was going to reestablish the, the greatness of Israel. And when that didn't happen, the people, I mean, they got dismayed. They they were disappointed in, in who they expected that Messiah to be. Jesus came to a different agenda. What was Jesus' agenda? Jesus was destined to die for their sins, and for some reason they simply could not, accept that. I would say in the same way, there are many people in the world today who can't accept the way that Jesus comes to us in the world. I think we are often led away from Jesus because of our false expectations. Some of us want a political Jesus. We want Jesus to fit whatever our political perspective is, whether it's the way left liberal or the way right conservative. We want Jesus to be, he wants them to love everybody and love their way of life because God is love or we want them to be uh, strictly ad- ad- adherers of the rules. Stay in the bounds of the rules and don't get out of, outside of those. And when the Bible and Jesus by his words reject uh, reject our platform, I mean, we, we get bothered by that. Many of us expect Jesus to satisfy our materialistic needs. Last week, Peter talked about the prosperity gospel. Uh, another way of, of talking about that is the health and wealth gospel, which says that is my faith is, if, I, if my faith is strong enough, uh, then I should, I should have whatever I want. I should be able to become rich. If my faith is strong enough, I'll never get sick. And if I do get sick and if I'm poor, living life as a, as a pauper, then that means I don't have enough faith. Some Christians expect Jesus to keep their lives from trouble, that nothing will happen in my marriage or my work or my kids, that life is always going to be hunky dory. But those people, I mean, obviously haven't read the words of Scripture. Because what does the Bible tell us? The the, the truth is that we are not destined to live uh, this carefree, easy life. A few weeks from now, we'll come upon John chapter 16, verse 33, that says, In this world you'll have tribulation. Jesus doesn't leave us hanging there, though. He says, Here, here's your hope. I've overcome the world. And if, if, you're, if you're in me, then, uh, again, there's nothing that you can't endure with my help. And so all this, all this boils down to this. You got this, this great feast of, of booze going on. There's singing, there's dancing, there's, there's religious ritual, all uh, honoring God for what he's done. And they get to the final day, and in the midst of all this, Jesus stands up, and in a loud verse, he says these words in verses 37, 38, and 39. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified." And so, obviously, that's a really important passage of Scripture because of what it says to us. Um, Jesus is both explaining the necessity of something, but also promising something that you absolutely have to have as a Christian. Now, John, we've talked about a few things in John. First, we talked about John talking about seven signs. Okay, so John, um, he uh, Jesus, uh, not John, Jesus. So Jesus uh, turns water into wine in John chapter 2. Then John chapter 4, he, uh, he heals a royal official's son. And then John chapter 5, he heals a paralytic who had been lame for 38 years. And then John chapter 6, he turns, uh, he feeds 5,000 people. Actually, he feeds fifteen to 20,000 people with, with a little bit of bread and fish. And then he walks on water. Okay? And so we got what? We got three, two more? I, I wasn't counting. Help me out. There's two more to go. All right, and then I think a couple of weeks ago I, I I brought up the first I am statement in John chapter six. He says, "I am the bread of life." You find your your spiritual nourishment from apart from me, you can't even exist in, in true life. You're like dead men walking without me. I'm the bread of life, um, and then we'll we'll tease that out over the the next uh, few weeks. There's no I am formula here in in verse 37 and 38. But these words, they are at least on the level of all the great things that Jesus has said about himself. I mean, it's way up there with him declaring who he is and what he's come to do. And so what we have here is in the backdrop of all this celebration and in particular, a feast that commemorates God bringing the the waters of salvation to his people Jesus stands up and he he says these words hey folks i here's your religious ritual but i am actually not only the source but i am the fulfillment of everything that you could absolutely need in terms of sustenance and 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 um and spiritual life it, it's in me it is me. I have come to be that for you. That's what he stands up and says. He says, I'm the true fountain of life. I'm the supplier of all spiritual necessities. I am the reliever of all your spiritual wants. There's three three things that we should get out of this. The first is a condition. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts. And so the, the condition is very simple. It just says anyone, not just a specific someone. You don't have to be a specific person ethnic group. You don't have to be male or female. You don't have to be old or young. You don't have to be rich. He doesn't even have to say you you need any any great spiritual qualification. He just says anyone. Isn't that pretty cool? You don't have to have the right spiritual pedigree. You don't have to be in that place where, oh, Lord, I'm, I've gone through so much, and I'm, ready, I'm just ready to, to surrender my life to you. You don't even have to be at that desperate, desperate spot. He's just saying, if anyone. That's the qualification. We're all in here, part of that anyone. Any, everybody in the world is part of that anyone. Actually, there is a qualification. He says you got to be thirsty. You got to be got to be a little thirsty. And so ask yourself, I mean, are you any in, in, in need? You got any need in you at all that you can't fulfill of in, in your own strength? Jesus is saying, hey, if anyone. If anyone thirsts, you can come to me. That's it. You know, a lot of times this is the thing about us. We think our need disqualifies us. That's sin in you that says that. Is, is well i don't want to i don't want to seem needy i don't want to i want to get my life right first and then i'll come to jesus this text here says you, you don't have to get your life right in fact just i mean how does how does the song go the hymn come as you are your need is your need doesn't disqualify you it qualifies you and that's good news for all of us and so the qualification is simply your need jesus says if you're needy come to me and drink it's that simple The next thing is invitation, and it's just as simple. The condition, if you're thirsty, the invitation is, let him come to me and drink. Thirst is the most powerful of all human sensations of need. We can go without food for a little bit. I mean, your stomach might growl. I mean, you feel those hunger pangs. But, I mean, going without water is rough, and you feel it immediately. I've spent four and a half years of my life in a desert environment. Not, I mean, the army sent me. And I can remember some days, you know, on a hill by with my, my team by ourselves, waiting on that next supply. And it's like, it needs to get here like right now. Like, like, it's a little late. I'm gonna hold on. I'm gonna swallow my spit. Oh, I have no spit left. Come on now. Give me some water. I don't know how those Bedouins did it. I don't know how they did it. Because there's no water in sight anywhere. Jesus here is speaking not just a physical thirst, though. He's speaking of a thirst of our soul. He's talking about those who are aware of their need to be cleansed and to be renewed in the spirit. Those that know they need to find acceptance in God. And so I would ask you, I mean, do you, is there anything in you that thirsts like this? And so, and if you would acknowledge that you got a little bit in you that, I mean, it's like, yeah, I need, I need, I need something to quench my thirst. I mean, how do you get it? How how can I get that that thirst, quenching stuff that Jesus is offering me? I mean, do I have to be good? Do I got to like, you know, have a perfect life? Uh, Should I write my get my checkbook out and give some money to the church or some other charity? I mean, what is this? Do I have to do all these good kind of things? Absolutely not. The the rhetorical answer is no. Jesus simply says, and and of course, this is the heart of the gospel. He says, come to me and drink. Anyone, simply just come to me and drink. Come to me and drink mean, means several things. Firstly, it means believe in Jesus. You know, we come to Jesus with our, our our faith. I guess you can come to him with your feet, too, but really, we come to Jesus with, with our faith. We come with our faith, and our hand's like an empty cup. It's got nothing in it. The cup is all beat up. And we ask Jesus by his grace to fill that cup up with the the goodness that only he can give us. And when we ask him, he's going to fill it and he's going to fill our empty souls. Coming to Jesus means believing his claim to be the only savior of the world. There are many gods, little g, but there's only one, one God, big G, and Jesus is it. God sent him from heaven to earth. to to live amongst us. There's no other religion that has a God who condescended himself from his greatness to to live amongst his people. But God did that in Jesus. Coming to Jesus means, come to me means receiving Jesus as your own savior and trusting him, trusting yourself into his care. Perhaps there's someone here today, I mean, you've never done that. That you've been coming to church, you've been around religious people, you've read your Bible, but you've never had this moment in time. Lord, I... I just come to you. I bring my sin to you. I, I know I need to be saved. I, I, I need the cleansing that comes from, that, that. can only come from you. Perhaps you need to do that today. Come to me means bring your sin to the cross where Jesus' blood was shed to forgive you of your sin, to, to reconcile you with God, because there's this huge chasm between you and your sin and a holy God, and only Jesus can be the, the mediator between you and and that God. Come to me means walking with Jesus. And that really is, it takes us into this third, the third thing, which is the promise. And so here's the promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Some of the other uh, translations for the word heart, it has the word belly. And, uh, and that really is what the word means. It means at the very, I mean at the very depths of who you are on the inside of you. Jesus is putting something out of you, and then he he zeos, that's a Greek word for, for living. He gives you supernat- a supernatural source of life that wouldn't just be for you so you feel good, but it, it, again, it flows outward to God and eventually out to the world. Jesus is, is filling you with himself so that you will uh, be connected to him, but Ultimately, that you would be this this living stream of water, this ever flowing goodness, this blessing that go that that's that's offered to the world. That's what he's giving you here. Now, John helps us out by telling us, I mean, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is what this this whole chapter boils down to. Jesus is unfolding for us a theology of the Holy Spirit. Now I, I know the Holy Spirit can be a, a missing link in some of your lives. Some of you even the the word Holy Spirit makes you nervous. You like close your Bibles, like, close your ears. Like he's getting to talk about something I don't want to get into yet. Like yeah, and we and we sometimes we're like that because of stuff we've seen on TV, experiences that we've had. I mean just wacky stuff that happens in the church. You know just stuff happens. But again we have to be informed by scripture, not necessarily even our own experience. You know, sometimes our own experiences can trip us up and and not make us available to the very things that God is offering us in his word. He's offering us here the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I've prophesied it in the Old Testament. I'm telling you that the necessity of it in all of John and here I'm promising it, and we're going to get to the book of Acts, and guess what's going to happen? On the, I mean, he's, he's going to pour it out on the disciples. He's going to pour, the, the 120 disciples are in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. This wind blows through, little tongues of fire stood on their head. They spoke in other tongues. They spoke in languages. And so this crowd, I mean, is a feast, the the Feast of Pentecost. And so thousands, much like the the Feast of Booths, had descended on Jerusalem and they're there in the streets and they hear these 120 disciples speaking the praises of God in their own languages. And it's like, what is going on? I hear them extolling the goodness of God and they're doing it in my own language. Are they drunk? And Peter stands up boldly. You know, the the same Peter who had failed Jesus multiple times, he stands up and he says, hey, these people aren't drunk. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've they've been given the promise that God promised way back in the prophets. It's here. It's happening. It's unleashed. And so Peter shares the gospel, and then he gets to these these poignant words in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The the people hearing Peter's words, they're cut to the chase and says, what do we have to do to receive this Jesus? And he says in verse 38, he says, repent and believe. That's how you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's chapter seven doing for us? It's it's unfolding for us the the promise that John and his gospel and all the other gospels and eventually Luke in the book of Acts will just unleash. And it's the He's telling us about the thing that we need to even be a Christian. You can't be a Christian without the gift of the Holy Spirit. How does Peter say you get the Holy Spirit? He says you repent. What's repentance? It's, it's turning my heart and my life to all those things, all those ways that I'm chasing, and I turn myself to Jesus, opening myself to the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the fulfillment of all that he gives me when he puts the Holy Spirit into me, causing... Uh, Supernatural source of life to live out towards God and out toward the world. That's that's all that's going on here. He's promising the Holy Spirit. Alright, I gotta land the plane. I had a lot of other notes, so I'm gonna skip those. Alright, so how did this feast end? I'm gonna read the whole this long passage of scripture to end the in the text here. When they heard these words, some of the people said This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke to us like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you ever been, have you been deceived also? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man first without giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search search and see that no prophet arises in Galilee. Verse 53. They went each to his own house, verse 8-1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Um, the end of the text, after Jesus unfolds the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, basically ends in I mean, it's more consternation, more, more division. And the message for us as the text ends is, is Jesus divides the crowd. He divides the, there's, there's these onlookers, this, this crowd that sees some divinity in Jesus and wants to follow him. There's uh, religious leaders that are telling the, the, the authorities to go and arrest Jesus. And then you have the authorities, that, uh, uh, like uh, the guards, who, who follow the rules and go to address, arrest Jesus. But when they get there, his words are piercing and they see in him something they've never seen before. and say, we're not touching him. He, he, like, he's special. Jesus divides the crowd. The very presence of Jesus divides the crowd. Jesus divides the crowd even today. You ever notice that? Say the word Jesus in the crowd when you go to lunch. See what happens. Jesus divides all of us by a gospel of love. And that really is what's going on way back in John 37. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. This is the gospel in concentrated form. Jesus divides by taking the the crowd's focus away from a, a simple religious ritual, the Feast of Booths. And he says, hey, You can have your ritual, but I really am the fulfillment of it. And so come, worship me, notice me, listen to my words. I'm the fulfillment of all of your wants and needs in human form. I've come to put inside of you a very supernatural source of life that you can't get from anywhere else. Come, drink. Life with God is life with the spirit. And I want us to be a church that is about the gospel and the grace of God. Grace is not transactional. What Jesus is eventually going to tell us about the Holy Spirit is that grace comes as a person. Grace comes as God's spirit. It's life with God. And the way that God makes that real for us is by giving us the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants to give you the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. May it Penetrate our intellect, seep down into our hearts, wrap around those dark places in our lives, expose them to light, and change us. Lord, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Help that to be our belief today. More importantly, as you say in the latter part of John, help us to know that you've come to offer us a source of living water. Water that we can't get from anywhere else on earth. It has to come from you. And that water is your spirit. If there are those here today that have yet to taste of uh, your living waters, God, I pray that you would uh, awaken them, awaken them, regenerate them by your spirit. Open their eyes and their hearts to receive you. Lord, Make them aware of their sin. And help them to know that the way to true life is through you. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.